Welcome to the second series of Batonnage, a podcast of stirring and stimulating discussions about wine. Hosted by Liam Stevenson, a master of wine, who, with his team at Vineyard Productions, makes wine in France, Spain and New Zealand, and offers international consultancy through Global Wine Solutions, and Guardian wine columnist, journalist and author Fiona Beckett, publisher of MatchingFoodAndWine.com. In this episode, Fiona and Liam chat to Jason Yap of leading UK independent wine merchant Yap Brothers, specialist in the wines of the Loire and the Rhone. Good morning, Fiona. Hello, Liam. Um, very pleased to be back for another episode of Batonage. And um, today, joined by well, a friend of mine, um, Jason Yap from Yap Brothers in Mir, a merchant I know well. I've sort of known all of my life, a wine merchant that celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, which is quite an achievement and um, celebrated for just an incredible selection of wines, particularly from the Loire Valley and from the Rhone, I believe that's right, and set up by your father. That's correct, yeah. He was a dentist to start with. Originally, and and wine fan, and he got a, had a hobby that got out of control, and it was your archetypal kitchen table business, yeah. started by accident. But he did the two concurrently for 15 years. So I think that's incredible. I read that the other day. That is just, Have you read I love the idea of, you know, dual, dual purposing as a dentist and, and a wine merchant. Did you read, have you ever read the book? I haven't. No, I should do. Drilling for wine. It's yeah, great. sadly out of print, but a, a very good read. You can, yeah, I think you can still find it online. Um, but uh, yeah, good fun. And the Rhone Valley, obviously still important to you, central. That was absolutely cool, because in those days, uh, those growers were relatively unrepresented, not very well known. So he had a pretty blank canvas with which to work, um, which isn't the case nowadays. But yep. we're lucky in that we still work with a lot of our original suppliers, like Sharp and Clap and and are you French or French-based or...? No, but predominantly. Okay. And you speak fluent French? Uh, fluent factory floor French. Um, I learned <laughs> my French in, on a bottling line in Dijon. Okay. There are a few swear words. There are lots of swear words. <laughs> <laughs> um, and today we're going to look at the longer dock. So, um, Fiona, this is an area that um, you're fond of, isn't it? You have a house down there. Yes, and I've gone down there for probably the last 20 or so years regularly. Yes, so so my normal holiday haunt. Yeah, and I make wine in the Roussillon and do a little bit of work in Pickpool. So I spend a fair amount of time down there too. Used to buy the wine for Waitrose in this area, so no, quite well too. I'm a fan of it. Um, so why did we choose the longer dock? Why do you want to talk about the longer dock today? Because I think it's a fantastically diverse area uh, that yields some really exciting um, and great value wines. And I think from a buyer's perspective, and therefore from a consumer's, it's really still really exciting. There's very few areas in France. If you think of the classic wine regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy and the Rhone, um, the real estate is relatively full, and uh, that's not the case in the Languedoc. So young people can still just about afford to start up and do their own thing in their own way, and they're not hidebound by sets of rules and uh, a long tradition of winemaking, um, even though wine's been made in the area since Roman times. So um, I think there's a great freedom in the Languedoc, and that's why it's so exciting. In case anyone's not familiar with the area it covers, just run us through the geography of it. Well, we're really talking about the uh, area inland from the Mediterranean coast, running from the Rhone Delta in the east to Perpignan in the west. Okay, so on the east you'd have um, areas like, Cost- is this Costier de Nîmes? 
Kostadinim is Kostadinim's got a bit of an identity crisis <coughs> because it gets included in all the texts on the Rhone um, and uh, all the texts on the Languedoc. Mm-hmm. So it's in the it's the intersection of the Venn diagram between the Rhone and Languedoc. But that would be at the easternmost extremity. And so Pic Saint Lou, for example, that's on that side, and then on before you actually hit Roussillon. It would be Corbière. Côte d'Auton, Corbière, Fitu. Yeah, that would be on the west side. And I know we're going to concentrate probably more on the quality end in terms of what we're going to taste, but this area is also the biggest wine producing area in France, um, home to quite a lot of the entry level wines. If you go into a pub or a restaurant and you drank a varietal wine, it would normally come from this area too, correct? Yeah, and an interesting history, which is, you know, it did. It was the epicenter for producing bulk wine, a lot of which was for the army under contract. And it was really dubious. And a lot of it was blended illegally with North African wine, which I only realized recently that was to augment it. That that wasn't uh, to, to dilute it. No, that was to improve it. Um, and um, I thought that only happened with, with Burgundy and Bordeaux. I didn't think the... No, no, it happened with... I didn't think Languedoc ha- ha- you incorporated it too. No, it happened a lot in the Languedoc, but then after France joined the EU in 1952 and Algerian independence in 1962, the market for bulk wine collapsed and we ended up with the wine lakes. And then that really saw the birth in the 1970s of the Van der Pey system and the Cepage Amélioreur, the single varietals, which yep. are what the Pay Doc is famous for and they do very well, I think. Yeah, largely from cooperatives. Principally from cooperatives, yeah. yeah. And that feels like an area which has sort of gone in and out of fashion. I imagine you know, cooperatives obviously managed this scene for a long time and then we've seen a big growth in domain or you know private-owned vineyard wineries and now a bit of a move back to cooperatives again, actually. That sort of shared vineyard, shared winery ownership seems to be swinging back into fashion again. Yeah, well, a lot of the wine makers we deal with are the offspring of Coopérateur, and they've broken away and done their own thing. And I can cite several examples of that. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's been a great. The Coops, in a way, have been a great sort of feeding ground for providing new talent. Yeah, I mean, I my history here is that I mean, I, in the last twenty years in the trade, I've certainly experienced selling a lot of the entry level and a desire to sell more of the kind of more appellation-driven wines. Um, and sometimes I'm not sure the customer's been quite ready for it, but it feels like we've broken through now. It feels like there is a desire for, you know, Fougere, for Fitu, for Corbière. Well, I think it was a region that was ill-served, and there's a lot of politics involved here, by the Paris-based INAO, the yeah. Institut National d'Appellation d'Origine. Um, and they didn't really recognise fully the quality of what were for a long time just crew of the Cote de Longueuil, like um, Pic Saint-Loup and the Terrasse de Larzac, that now have very belatedly finally got AOC or AOP status. Um, but it was a region that uh, I think was neglected and underrated, but that gave people the opportunity to buy land relatively inexpensively, which has seen seismic qualitative improvements that I hope We'll taste the evidence of today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, um, I know you do, it's just done a run of press tastings for supermarkets, but how important is this category for them? I think it's still, it depends on the supermarket. I think it's still relatively important. Um, 
I don't think they make a great song and dance about it, but when I'm going through my notes and when I'm thinking about recommendations, it's quite often longer doc. I think, oh gosh, you know, that was amazing for the money. Yeah. And I still think that it's for value for money, it's still incredibly strong. What, you know, like I have other some reservations about it, which we'll come to, but um, but I think you know you can't you can't knock it for value at all. Should should we let's should we pile into the pig pool? Yeah, that absolutely. We've, um, that you've brought, Jason. Tell us about that. Well, pig pool de Pinay, um, one of the great local wines um, of the Languedoc, made uh, on the banks of the Bassin de Tau, which is the big uh, saltwater lagoon uh, just southwest. Of Montpellier and um, Pinay is the place it's one of seven villages on the banks of the Bassin and Pinay uh, sorry Pinay is the place and Peakpole is the grape and Peakpole in the pay dot means uh, lip sting peak is sting and uh, pool is lip uh, so it's a lip stingingly acidic or fresh <clears throat> wine and it's raison d'etre is to go with the bivalves that are cultivated in the Bassin um, uh, specifically oysters. Yeah. Um, it is wonderful with oysters. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> have you been to Pitbull? Yeah. I always think it's remarkable if you go to, say, somewhere like Felling Jordan or where, any of the big producers and you mm-hmm. stand in the vineyards close to the water, it almost feels like the water's above you. I mean, you couldn't get closer to sea level because it's right down there. Um, and there's an element to the sea in every good Pitbull, I think. Uh, exactly. I think they have this slightly briny, almost saline quality. There's a very strong sense of terroir. And I like the fact you have one grape in one very specific area doing one thing and 20 years ago I think probably none of us around this table had heard of people and then in the 21st century it's become a go-to drink it does a very similar uh, job as something like muscadet a neutral dry uh, palate cleansing it's just that little bit more generous isn't it than than, uh, muscadet Um, uh, and but I think some of the cheaper ones, this is not, um, this is really nicely rounded and quite elegant. I mean, I think some of the cheaper ones are a bit rough. Um, I mean, I'm sure at the price they're selling for, it's not surprising. But um, tell us about this producer. So this is made by Laurence Gaugel um, in Pinay itself. And they're a very old uh, family-run estate. And um, we... First tasted the grape and went on the hunt for a people in uh, 2004 and listed this in 2005 and we've not looked back. We've shipped every vintage since and it sells very well. And this vintage is? This is the 2018. Yeah. 2018, yeah. We never normally talk retail prices. Can we do it? How no, much? I'd like to talk. How much do you sell this for? That is a good question. <laughs> I will have to... <laughs> Answer in just so the reason when you're looking, the reason I, I should know this. The reason I mention that is I think Pickpool, um, there's been an explosion of interest in Pickpool, mm. and I and I always cite it as a example of 20 years ago, 15 years ago, innovation in the wine trade always felt happened through retail. Someone like Obvins was showed something new, they bought mm. Greek wines to the market, or they just you know, it was coming from the likes of Obvins or good independent retail. Then I felt that, um sommeliers and restaurants have become the place where wines are explained and talked about for the first time. When that advice goes away from the retail scene and now happens at the restaurant table, that's the opportunity for a sommelier to go, have you tried Pickford? Have you tried Alberino? So there's been some wines which seem to have come from the restaurant scene. And I feel like Pickford is a great example of that. But it's also gone from almost zero to hero very, very fast. 
and two cooperatives particularly have driven a huge amount of volume at quite a low price point. Yeah, well, this is at the upper echelon yeah. of the price. This is eleven ninety, so it's quite aspirational, really, yeah. for people. But, but actually, why not? I mean, if you uh, Alberino regularly fetches between sort of twelve and you know sixteen, seventeen pounds. Yeah. So um, I mean, there are cheaper ones, but actually, Pitbull struggles to top the ten pound mark. But actually, if they've got quality like that in the bottle. Yeah. You know, it should be that amount. There is an argument that Pickpool can't get clever enough or interesting enough to demand a high price. But when you taste this, it's really textural, isn't it? There's a richness, a nuttiness, a texturalness, which you get to quality muscadet as well, which I guess is coming from some, some skin contact in the ferment. Yeah, um, it's for, for sure that's the case. Yeah. And um, I get, like everything in life, you get what you pay for. But this, uh, yeah, from an independent producer, um, relatively hands on vinification I don't think it sees any oak um, but it's it's a nice clean dry wine but it's got that salinity as well yeah. uh, which I think works very well with food because you no, so tell us about your your pitfall experiments so we work with a cooperative the big cooperative down there and we do some own labels for a couple of supermarkets in the UK and one abroad um, and it's a blending experiment and it's always tricky to make it interesting and sometimes we blend a little bit of other varietals and sometimes we play around with some skin contact but it's hard to get interesting and I think the reality is this is an example of really well-grown grapes. I mean, it's obviously good from the very beginning. Um, there's a weight and there's a richness, which I don't think you necessarily get um, from the larger co-ops because we're driving volume there. I mean, this almost reminds me of our nace from northern Italy, that kind of nutty richness, which is not quite unusual. as perfume. No, but it, is, it, it makes me th- I mean, it is yeah. in that, um, you know, seafood wine register, isn't it, very much? Um, yeah, really good. Yeah. I mean, it's So a- why, why are... Pickpool sometimes so you know obviously sharp and citrusy they don't necessarily have that salinity what, what's what's is it is that the yeast that are being used or what I think it's hard to drive high volumes and keep that level of mid palate at the same time mm. and I think that's coming from just from you know lower yields and concentration of the grapes that are coming in without that it is naturally a bit higher, a bit more twangy. And if you, I'm imagining that if we were to go back 25 years ago, that if you found pickball, it would be on the side of the road, you know, oyster shacks, drinking, you know, small glass of pickball. It would be very local, very easily consumed. And it probably would be a lot more acidic and leaner and probably not anywhere near as good as this. And quality has been pushed. Yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty fair assumption. Yeah. Mm. Really good, love it. Should we talk about rosé? Mm. That's a really nice... Uh, Provencal pink rosé on the table, um, which I think we should try. Um, it's to Have you yeah. sold any rosé in the last five months of winter? Yeah, funny enough, uh, rosé for us is now more of a year-round uh, phenomena. It, it used to be a very straight season from May to September, yeah. and um, I think the whole demographic of rose, your typical rosé drinker has changed. I think there's a, a, a younger generations of wine drinkers don't remember the uh, mass-produced, slightly sweet, confected, I won't name names and get into trouble, uh, you know, industrially produced rosés which, which gave the genre a bad name in this country. And um, I think qualitatively, we've always, it's a genre we've always Champion, but I think the quality's improved enormously. And 
One of the really positive changes is the amount of wine being sold in the UK by the glass has made a, a younger generation of wine drinkers more experimental, and they've uh, people of, of all genders, you know, have decided that rosé is a, a good go-to drink and works very well with food, and um, uh, the market's um, increased dramatically. I was yeah. talking to one of the Morrison's buyers yesterday at the um, tasting. And they said, you know, um, that actually Provence in particular has been very clever because um, they've they've latched onto the fact that people want a bit of pizzazz in the packaging, and actually, so the the bottles look great. I mean, there have always been those curvy bottles, and then and now there are now kind of like you know chunky bottles, and there are square bottles, and there are magnums. The, the magnums are a recent phenomenon, yeah. and one of our our buying questions is, can we get this in magnums? Yeah. Because um, mm. uh, there's demand there. But the Languedoc does very similar wines, um, actually, and quite often at a pound or two cheaper, don't they? They do. Maybe not and, in this case. And, uh, well, this is uh, from, a, from a really good value wine area between Beziers and Pezinas. You have the Tong River Valley, and this is a Cote de Tong, where you find about 40 different uh, independent producers. And um, again, this is... Um, an estate we've been dealing with uh, for about 15 years. And this is a blend, an unusual blend, of Cabernet Franc, Grenache Noir, Syrah, and Sanso. Okay. And it's got that pale onion skin colour, which is definitely Durigur at the moment. Yeah. In a way, the paler the better uh, seems to be the consumer's um, yeah. opinion. These Van Gris, as they would have been mm. known historically. And um, this is made to be drunk young, on its fruit, and it's um, not particularly intellectually challenging uh, wine. They're now nearly all bottled in these clear bottles, so you, you get a very good view yeah. of the colour and, and how it's going to look in your glass. And um, yeah, good, crisp, taut, easy drinking, lots of bright red berry fruit. And um, uh, the tongue is. You know, for reds and rosés, uh, a really go-to area yep. um, for value and uh, a good example of an area that the INAO neglected, if you ask me. Although our podcasts focus on the liquid in the glass, every bit as important to its pleasure is how it's stored, presented and served. Tanglewood create the finest cellar spaces. Open the door and you immediately know you are somewhere special. Beautifully crafted, ingeniously organised, every cellar is bespoke, built to showcase wines. The team at Tanglewood are the finest in the industry. Draftsmen and craftsmen working with the best materials and equipment available. And it's not just cellars. Wine fridges, glasses, everything down to the all-important corkscrew. Have a look at tanglewoodwine.co.uk for more or follow them on Instagram at Tanglewood Wine Storage and send a direct message to receive a 10% off code for all wine refrigeration and accessories. I think Sanso is really interesting with rosé because when you read um, a book on rosé, it will always talk about Grenache and um, Syrah being vital or the, the dominant or the noble varietals. Every time I've done any work in Provence or the Languedoc on rosé, Sanso has always been the key blending component. It's I think you're right. Rate. Yeah. I and mean, whenever I taste um, a rosé I like, you know, there's always a significant percentage of, of Sanso and it gives 
I don't know, a kind of crisp bite to yeah. the um, wine, which is which is really nice. I think actually it's a better blending component in many ways than Grenache. It's yeah. like it's more suited to to rosé. Well, they use a lot, of course, in Provence, notably in, in Bondol, which is now. I mean, historically it was a red wine producing area, and now rosé by far dominates production, which is quite telling in itself. But I, what it is, as you both said, really, is a great catalyst. It really marries other varieties together very well and you get a very harmonised end result. Yeah. And I think this is a pretty good example of it. Yeah, and yeah. rosé was um, traditionally um, what you drank in Languedoc when you weren't drinking red. I mean, you know, when, when we first went there in, in, the, um, in the 90s, you know, like that's what you drank in the summer. In fact, you used to go down to the co-op um, with a cubi, which is a five-litre plastic um, you know, container, and fill up from... Um, from the tank, like, you know, like filling up with petrol from a pump. And it was just ridiculously cheap and probably quite low in alcohol. It was probably about 11%, 11.5%, but just incredibly refreshing. And, the, and a lot of dark summers can get really hot. Yeah. And so actually, you know, it's just the perfect lunchtime wine. It's a really interesting category, this. Though. I was talking to a champagne producer about, you know, where their competition came from, imagining that they would talk about Prosecco and you know, maybe English sparkling wine, and they said, no, it's all rosé. That's our risk, is that you used to celebrate with champagne, and now you celebrate with a big bottle of rosé. You know, Magnum's, Jeroboam's, it's really become the celebratory tool, which it wasn't in the past. And, I mean, I think what's really clever about rosé producers, and, you know, especially sort of not to talk, if we go back to Provence, is that they've understood how to talk to the consumer and talk to the trade like a consumer, and really sell dreams and stories and all that messaging that comes from big bottles. It's so clever and so accurate. And looks very good on social media, yeah. um, which is part of the appeal, I think. Yeah, Instagram. It's yeah. so Instagrammable, sure. rosé. Yeah. But only awesome. really Champagne and Provence Rosé have ever done it particularly well. You know, they've mm -hmm. built margin in telling a story. Um, mm -hmm. And far more people will tell you how much they love rosé from Provence because, you know, it's wonderful being us looking at the sea than have ever been to Provence, I'm sure, you know. Um, but it's, um, it's very appealing. Yeah. But it doesn't have the romance, does it? It, it still doesn't have the romance of... It's still a, an under-regarded area, I think. Do, would you agree? Yeah, but I think that's some of it, it, its charm. You, you, you don't get... You go to a classic um, resort area in Provence like Cassis, and it's hellish in the high summer. It's yeah. jam-packed with people. You can't get a table in a restaurant. Uh, that's not the case in the Languedoc. It's all a bit more laid back. There used to be a kind of feeling that you this sort of wine didn't travel you know 20 years ago people say you can't buy rosé from southern france it doesn't travel is that nonsense well i think what happens there is that people are on holiday they're probably by the pool they're completely de-stressed they're drinking the local wine in hot weather the wine's very chilled yeah everything seems wonderful when you then transfer that same bottle back to your semi in Surbiton, and you've got the central heating on. It's not the same experience. No. So I just think it's the rest of the background <clears throat> doesn't travel. And also, you know, they're putting it in their cars and crossing and crossing France, you know, in midsummer temperatures. Yeah. And so actually, you know, and leaving it in car parks. Yeah. So actually, I don't think that helps. But you're right. I mean, I have friends in southern France. When we go there, we spend a day on the beach, and then they always serve. They call it a piscina rosé, which is basically a big round glass with lots of ice and lots of rosé, and it's just you know you come for the beach. It's the best thing in the world. Can't do that at home. No, I think I think it, it, that's part of it, and um, but no doubt about it, the winemaking's improved as well. Yeah.
Totally. Really good. Okay, what are we going to do next? Um, let's talk about Pic Saint-Loup, which is a favourite um, appellation of yours, less so of mine, uh, but let's, yeah, tell us why you like it. Um, I like Pic Saint-Loup very much because, uh, particularly because of this estate, which is uh, Mass Bruguiere, and it's made by the Bruguiere family, and has been uh, since the French Revolution. And this is a blend of 60% syrup and 40% Grenache. And this, possibly more than, than any other Languedoc wine, it, it has a very, very strong sense of terroir. So the Peak Saint-Loup itself is a, is a big limestone edifice uh, yeah. rising um, uh, up above the floodplains. And um, the vines grow right up to it. And it's mirrored by... Uh, a twin outcrop called Ortus from this very famous domain Ortus, which is the near neighbour of this estate. And um, uh, the name of this is a La Bousse, and this is the 2017 vintage, which is the wild strawberry tree. And um, you do get those kind of confected red fruits on the nose, but also an inimitable garrigue, a wild sort of herb and berry. Yeah. scent and um, I I don't have a particular penchant for this maybe more than uh, other people it'll be very interesting to see what you two both think of it but um, I just love that browery fruit the slightly sort of gamey little bit savage palate and then uh, almost slightly rough tannins on the finish that lend it really really well to food so um, I'm very happy to go on record that I drink this a lot at home it's a personal favourite and um for me, it really, it's why I brought it along today. It typifies what the Languedoc is good at. And um, shockingly, Peak Saint Loup only got Appalachian status in this vintage, 2017. So a very <clears throat> recent arrival at the um, crew level. So I've I walk these vineyards actually, and I do. Um, so they are completely unfertile, and I love the fact that in that lack of fertility, you only really get vines surviving and those gary curves you talk about those thyme lavender you know um and in the evening all you can smell is that kind of perfume and it does go through to the wine it's really i think it's one of the key terroir wines of france actually i think you really pick up that lovely herbal note on the nose it's beautiful i mean this area can be a bit opulent which i think maybe is that's my my i think it's i think it's evolving like everything else is but i would say um 10 years ago Five to ten years ago, you know, you used to get these, you know, oaky monsters. These these very extracted uh, reds, high alcohol. This this I noticed only thirteen point five, which for a wine of this sort of richness is is perfectly in balance. Um, but you know, the, they were they were kind of like getting the alcohol quite high. They were using a lot of wood, a lot of new wood. Maybe they were making for the American market, and actually it. It was just really clunky. It was it was not typical. It was not. Uh, it didn't. It didn't have any sense of place to me. This does. I mean, I'm just like longing for some wild boar. Really. Yeah, in a way that <laughs> Brunello can be to Tuscany. I think mm. Pixelli can be to the Languedoc. It can be a little bit full on. Yeah. Um, this is delicious. Really good. I think there's probably. I mean, it's a very good point Fiona made. I think there's probably a bit more restraint being exercised now, and uh, less oak. Certainly less new oak. And um, uh, this is produced organically. I think the winemaking has become a 
bit less interventionist and um, we can see that qualitative improvement and um, uh, I think this is uh, you know the qualitative level that's pretty close to something like Chateauneuf de Pat which would pay a lot more for so I think there is good so how much is this with that? Throw it, throw uh, it into a that, 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 that retail is seventeen fifty. That's yeah. great. Yeah, really I mean, it is. Uh, it, it is kind of you know, if you like Chateau Neuf de Pape, you would really love this. Yeah. And um, but it does have its own identity. It's not. Um, I think it's, it's not derivative, is it? I think it's brilliant. I was down. I saw a um, producer called Olia Romani in Corbière about three or four years ago, and um, they put me in the back of the Land Rover and drew me, drove me up into the hills and said. The interesting thing about this area is that most of the best vineyards haven't been planted yet. And I said, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, this is co-op land. It's an area where we used to plant in the most fertile, most high-yielding areas. We weren't worried about quality. We were worried about producing a lot of grapes. And actually, only now we're starting to get the small producers that are saying, okay, we might make less wine out of that plot of land, but the resulting wine is much better quality. And I think someone like this, you get it right up high. In that love, it's got an acidity, it's got freshness to it, mm. but it's still got. I'm depth. also thinking, you know, it's got aging potential. Yeah. So this, that, well, this, this yeah. is another thing. It, you know, it must be delicious in five years' time, at least. I think it will definitely if improve. Not longer. Definitely improve with age. And um, Liam's point, a very good one. In that historically, those wines have been made for very fast turnover consumption. There was a lot of carbonic maceration going on. You know, they were really trying to get the conveyor belt turning um, pr- principally for the cooperatives. Whereas uh, everything about this is more sedate and no doubt about it, we're tasting it very young. Mm. And with two to three plus years bottle age, it's mm. going to be even better. Also, um, as it opens up in the glass, I'm getting that lovely spicy Syrah character mm. coming through. It's really, <clears throat> really spicy, really peppery. And, I, and it's really quite like dark it. fruit as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think it was partly, um, you know, Longadoc having a bit of a, a chip on its shoulder. Longadoc producers sort of like, well, we've got to prove that we're serious. And the way they proved they were serious was by using lots of new oak and and kind of getting it really out of kilter with the fruit and sort of yeah. thinking new oak is the way to go, parkerization is the way to go. And I think everyone's reined back a bit. Not everyone, but I mean, a lot of people have reined back from that. Um, and are more self-confident, do you think? More of a sense of what they're worth? Or uh, is it no, still no, a chip? You no, 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 I think you, you put that very succinctly. And there's definitely less uh, marked oak going on. And increasingly, growers in the region are using bigger demi-mui, you know, 300 and la- litre and larger barrels yeah. to have less wood impact on the wines, which I don't think they need because there's plenty of natural tannin. Uh in, in the juice. So out of interest, so you, I know the producers you work with on their own and they are many of the best and they they have a very high ceiling in terms of pricing. Does the longer lot have a price ceiling? I mean, is there? Well, the market leader is uh, probably Domaine de la Grange des Pères, which was first produced in 1992. And you're doing very well on the 70 market if you find a bottle of that in two figures. Right. Mm. Very well. Um, and if I do, I'm a buyer. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you occasionally stumble across in, you know, in some sort of country restaurant. And, you know, like somebody will have an older vintage and, and you know, won't be totally aware of its its market price or desirability. And, and then you can 
you know, you can sometimes find a bottle. I mean, I really like places like that, you know, sort yeah. of like places that typically are not terribly on trend and have been going for a while and then kind of have really nice wine lists. I know Gerard Bertrand has just at the single vineyard site in Minervois La Levinière, and that is, you know, on release 100 euros, which is, you know, it's interesting that they're bold enough to do that. Yeah, but I think, yeah, I think, so, you know, there are some producers, um, you know, who are still kind of playing that sort of international game and, and that kind of, you know, the points game. I'm less interested in that, to be honest. You know, I think that's that's not where the interest in the long run lies. Well, it depends, really. A, a lot of interest, I guess, is about where the great sites are. And I've got an Andrew Jefford quote here, and he is on record as saying, if you were to write me a out a cheque for a million euros and tell me to go and find somewhere to make great red wine, I would look most closely of all at the Terras de Laza. Oh, wow. So, um, but Andrew clearly. actually lives in there, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. And, uh, so that would be on his doorstep. He clearly thinks that's um, uh, enclave of fine winemaking, yeah. and I'd agree. I don't think you should. Well, you can do whatever you want, but I don't think you should write off Gerard Bertrand's ambitions in a in a hobby because I think he's probably the driving force of the region right now, and he's doing so much good. I, well, in terms of telling a global story, it's quite interesting. Um, I think he's. Yeah, I kind of you know I don't think I'd agree with that. I think he's um, he does a really good job in um, producing sort of well priced wines in, in for the mid market. Um, anything I've tasted that's more ambitious of his tends to be in that kind of oaky monster. I agree, but I would also, I wouldn't doubt if there was a fact that would say that he's probably done more to drive up the average price of the longer dot than anyone else. Oh, controversial. What about um, Master Maskasek? Small stuff, small stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, let's try, Mm. let's try the Terastalazak. Where is the terrace of Lazar? So it's a rocky outcrop um, to the northwest of Montpellier. Okay. Do you, you kind of, because you cross it when you go across that amazing bridge at uh, Mio, don't you? Don't you cross the Plateau de Lazac? So is it near there? Uh, it, it must be. Yeah. And. Um, it benefits from free-draining soils, uh, great elevation, mm. critically cool nights. Yeah. So the temperature swing is very significant between, I mean, it's definitely in double figures between day and night. And um, uh, cooling sea breezes, great light levels. I mean, it, it's, it ticks all the boxes, really, in terms of um, great uh, vine-growing conditions. Okay. And what's what's the blend on this? That is a blend of sixty percent Syrah, twenty percent Grenache Noir, and twenty percent Mourvedre. Mm. And it's made by a young winemaker called Frederick Portelier, and he trained um, with Alain Grio first of all in the in the Rhone Valley, who was a big influence. Um, I'm sure that's why there's the Syrah base there. But then latterly, um, at his near neighbour. Uh, uh, Laurent Valle's Domaine de la Grande des Pères. Mm. So there's a close association. And Montcalm is not particularly well known here in the UK, but definitely getting an increasing reputation in, in France. Yeah. And um, this is the 2015 vintage. 
So again, on the young side, but hopefully you'll be able to taste its potential. This is absolutely gorgeous. So if you go to the Roussillon side, we have more Carignan in play. But when we go more towards the Rhone, Syrah and Morvedra and Grenache clearly play more of a role. Is that right? It seems it in the wines we're tasting today. Yeah, and it, it, funny enough, uh, the, um, if you go right to the western extremities, you, you get much more Atlantic influence, yeah. both in terms of grapes and climate. And um, uh, to the east, it's much more Mediterranean. But I, I'm actually, I'm a huge fan of Morvedre. I think it's an amazing grape, and it adds, and I think has added here, this kind of incredibly exotic, almost perfumed yeah. note. Mm. I mean, it's a very sexy grape. I mean, it's a very I difficult. Hear more about it. It's a very difficult grape because it has very small berries, mm. and so if it isn't fully ripe, it can taste incredibly bitter, mm. which is why it doesn't isn't planted anywhere north of Lyon. Yeah. Um, and it needs that long, full, sunny ripening season, which which you have here. Uh, you know, 300 days average of sunshine, I think, in, in the Languedoc. And um, you really need that to be fully ripe to get that wonderful, spicy yeah. quality. The, you can see here. Actually, good. Mm, but let's just, when I think of it, um, the climate of the Languedoc, when, when we first um, had a house there in the, in the 90s, it was just reliably sunny from, I mean, usually from February through to November. And actually, I can remember sitting you know, outside on the terrace in December. I mean, on New Year's, New Year's Day, you know, we, we, we would be able to sit outside often. Um, now it's much more changeable. There's much more rain. Um, yeah. well, 20, 2018 was the vintage that has proved most challenging in recent memory uh, with mildew. Yeah. I mean, mm. it, that was an issue as far south as Tuscany. Mm. Um, so... I have no time for climate change deniers. Uh, it is definitely changing. Um, I was in Alsace last week and talking with a grower about his top Pinot Noir that he made first in 2003, 2009, 2015, and every vintage since. Wow. Um, because they're getting the degrees yeah. every year. Mm. Um, but it's not just the heat, is it, that... that, that um you know, that is changing it. It's the changeability. It's the amount of rain. I mean, yeah. I think that's what I notice because I kind of keep, I keep um, you know, the, uh, the village on, on my phone in terms of weather forecasts. And I'm looking at it every, every, usually every day to see you know, what, what's it like in France. And um, it's surprising how often it's raining. I mean, it used not to rain for weeks on end. Yeah, I remember going to Pezinas and seeing the vineyards completely underwater. Mm. And um, but you're right. I mean, I remember that 18 vintage really well. I mean, mildew, huge problem. That I mean, you know, it's not an area that's going to suffer from hail and, and frost, frost too much. But it is an area that does have rainfall issues, and it is changing, for sure. Yeah, but at least they have the two things in their favour: the elevation. Yeah. Uh, as you head up to the Cévennes and the Montagnois, you've got some beautifully elevated vineyards. So. Two things I can say that, that are cooling. One is the elevation, and the other is the sea sea breezes. And um, so there's a tramontane, isn't there? There is, um, which uh, which is the um, longer dock equivalent of the mistra. Yeah, exactly, and that has a very beneficial effect on the vines because it keeps them really pest free and clean, and that may reduce yields a little bit, taking for any loose 
grapes, but um, uh, it means it's much easier to produce a, a wine organically, yeah. um, which is increasingly uh, prevalent and a very good thing as far as we're concerned, and not least in terms of biodiversity. And um, uh, the vintages are probably getting more variable, yeah. um, but I would argue less so than sure. elsewhere. Yeah, um, still a safer place to be growing grapes. Yeah, I do think Syrah, uh, Languedoc Syrah in particular, is just amazing. I mean, uh, you know, I think the best the best wines for me have a you know a, a higher percentage of Syrah, and the Syrah is lovely. I mean, it's gorgeous in this wine. It's uh, it's really delicious. What I love about these wines is they, they're very textural and you've got this chewy tannic nature to them. And I imagine as a, as a food and wine matcher, they're kind of mm. heavenly, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they, they are very easy wines to take through a meal. Um, and you could actually drink this, this, uh, this wine with a, something like a fish soup because there's this, this incredible sort of strength with all that sort of shellfish stock. And, and actually, I think red goes just as well um, as white does with... with uh, fish soup so have you um having mastered the Rhone and the Loire I mean are there, are there learnings from the Rhone that apply to what you do in the Languedoc I mean do you buy your wines based on you know have you do you like the Syrah based wines because you like they remind you of the Northern Rhone or is it completely different no they probably remind me of the Southern Rhone um more uh and you get less of that northerly sort of granitic Influence, but um, the real attraction uh, from a commercial point of view is that there were great winemakers that weren't already signed up by rival wine merchants, and um, I could I could knock on people's door and actually get an audience with someone who had some wine to sell me. Yeah, um, which uh, isn't the case elsewhere. So uh, that was really a great feeling, uh, you know, relatively unexplored. Wine country. You can uh, still discover down there. Yeah, you can. Yeah. And um, because the land is you know, relatively inexpensive, it is possible for you know, someone in their 20s who's left wine school to rent or buy a small parcel of vines and start their own thing with their own vision and, and follow their dreams. And that's why it's exciting. Thank you very much. That was amazing. I love those. I loved all of them. I thought that pickball was extraordinary at the beginning. It yes. really showed me how high pickball can go. It was an absolutely brilliant one. Well, thank you very much for inviting me along. And yeah, for a tasting in a basement, I thought the wines go pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a flower day, so we're, we're okay. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. You have been listening to Batonage, a wine podcast hosted by Fiona Beckett and Liam Stevenson. For tips on matching food and wine, visit Fiona's website, matchingfoodandwine.com, or to make, buy, or sell wine, check out Liam's company, globalwinesolutions.com or vineyard-productions.com.